Jesus prayed, may they be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you love me. So today is World Communion Sunday, and at the end of the message, in just a few minutes, we'll take communion at one of eight stations around the room. As you take communion, they will speak to you in a language that is from that country. We have several in our congregation from other countries, and um, some that are just strongly associated with other countries, and so we've asked them to actually um, lead at those stations. And in a few moments, you'll get to do that in Whatever language it is, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism all over the world today. What a great day this is. In that same prayer in John 17, Jesus said, Father, I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known so that the love that you have for me, wait for it, may be in them and I myself may be in them. So that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Some years ago, they did a survey among Americans to find out what phrase would you like would you most like to hear uttered with sincerity? <laughs> to no one's surprise, the winner far and above was, I love you. Second place was also no surprise, I forgive you. Third place took everyone by surprise, supper's ready. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think it's true, but I think when supper's ready, the day is over. When supper's ready, there's a margin. Supper's ready, there is nothing after supper most of the time. Now, if you think about it, there are uh, two meals in the American day. One of those is lunch and one is supper. Those are different meals. Lunch is shorter compressed by schedules on either side. It's typically a business agenda that's a little bit less intimate. <laughs> Don't be offended if someone says, let's get together for lunch. <laughs> but when someone says, come over for supper, well, then they're thinking, you could stay all night. That could go on a while. So if you ask someone, hey, why don't we get together for supper? <laughs> and they go, no, I think you're a lunch kind of person. <laughs> now they're telling you something. In the Jewish day, there were also two meals. There was lunch and there was supper. Breakfast almost non-existent, grabbed it on the way out, just like Americans do. Lunch, they went through Chick-fil-A, just like Americans do. And supper was when the day was over. And so when you gathered people for supper, they were usually your closest friends. You didn't waste money on people that weren't close to you because you didn't have food just all over the place like Americans do. 
so whenever you saw somebody sitting down for supper in someone's house back in Jesus' day, it sent powerful messages to the rest of the community. It's why Jesus was often accused as having supper with sinners and tax collectors because it was first century way of saying, wait a minute, you only have supper with people closest to you. Are those the ones who are closest to you? Are those the kind that you like to be with? Is that your preferred company? Some of Jesus' greatest lines were said around supper time when he said, I didn't come for righteous people, I came for sinners. That's a supper conversation. When he said, if you pour new wine into an old wineskin, it'll burst. You need whole new organizations, guys. That was a supper conversation. When he said, when someone's been forgiven much, they love much, but when someone's been forgiven little, they only love a little. That was a supper conversation. He had supper with sinners, and he had supper with people who hated sinners. This is strange about him, because he could move in and out of different circles just as easy Uh, And the two circles that he would move in and out of didn't like one another. And so when you put him in a Pharisee's house and you remember he says to the Pharisee at supper, you hypocrite. (laughs) Wow, thanks for coming over. He says, "You, you clean the outside, but... You leave the inside dirty. That was a supper conversation. It helps me translate really what's going on in Jesus' mind because he wouldn't have meant that as warring words like Americans would have because he was the guest at someone's supper table. He meant it, but not with the same bite maybe that we would have. This conversation... uh, In Matthew chapter 5, this sermon doesn't take place at a table. But as I read it this week, that's where I found myself. Let me explain. I put an icon on the screen a few um, months ago, and it was an icon of Rublev's Trinity. It was painted by Rublev in the 15th century, and he was the first to portray the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sitting together. And when you look at that painting, you can't tell which one is which. You don't know who, there it is. You don't know which person is which person. But if you look at it a little more closely, it almost appears, doesn't it, that there's a space at the end of the table where someone else is welcome. That changed a lot of things for me, you guys. Because it meant that when we were coming to God, we were coming to a community. And the beginning was not the solitude of one, but the communion of three. And so to become like God was to become part of, immersed in a whole community. It wasn't just to be a holy individual. I started to think why you can't even be a holy individual any more than you can be a one-man trinity. (laughs) 
It's not because God won't let you. It's just a contradiction in terms. If holiness means to be like God and God is a community, then you have to immerse yourself in a communion of people in order to truly be like God. So we started... uh, back then to imagine that the triune God was sitting at the table and that there was a fourth chair that was coming to the table and maybe that fourth chair was us. If this is all new for you, I'll go as fast as I can. It changed for us the meaning of worship. Worship was no longer meant to try to get people in the mood for anything because truthfully, you guys, worship's not about us. It's about a conversation that the triune God has been having amongst himself for about, oh, four or five billion years. And so worship was just a matter of coming to the table where the conversation had already begun and hearing what the Father was saying to the son and coming alongside him and saying, they're right about you. Everything he's saying about you is right. And you're saying it in song and in liturgy and in scripture. And as you say it, it's like you come to the table. Prayer is not just a matter of me coming and unloading the burdens on my heart. It's listening to the triune God communicate with each other. And then As I listen long enough, I can say, I got something I got to say. Membership is not just my commitment to a local church as if it were an organization. It's actually immersing myself into a body of believers that is seated at the table. Did you see how this radically changes everything that the church knows about these things? I said that day that In order to come to the table, one had to come through the church. The fourth chair was not an individual. It was the body of Christ. So when we join for worship, it's not you who sings. It's the church who sings. And you're in it. Sing. (laughs) You say, I can't. Oh, that's all right. Sing anyway. They'll drown you out. But you see, it's not just a private love affair that we have with the members. It's actually coming into a body, a communion of saints. And as I come into the church, the church becomes a portal that lets me into the communion of God. And the church is a portal through which God goes out through the world. Maybe God doesn't just win individuals to Jesus all by himself. Maybe God actually uses the body of Christ as part of the saving process. Oh, I mean, I used to think he got people saved, you know, all on his own. And then when they were good and ready, he added them to the body. <laughs> now I'm beginning to think, I don't think that's right. I think actually becoming part of the body is part of the salvation process. So you can't actually be saved apart from immersing yourself in the body. Today, I hear Jesus inviting me, us, to the table. What he says is, you have heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, 
Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Wait for it. So that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Do you hear him? He is identifying who his children are. And he's identifying it by the love that he sees inside of them. See, I grew up believing that if I just believed in my heart and I confessed with my mouth, I was a child of God. And then after that happened, I would learn how to love other people. So I was always a child of God learning how to love others, on my way to loving others. But if I heard him right, what he's saying is in effect, <laughs> you are learning how to love others on your way to becoming children of God. Switched it for me. He also identifies the kind of love that this is. He says, when you love others, you are the children of your Father who is in heaven. I'm assuming then that the love that I have for others is the love of the Father in heaven, isn't it? I mean, if I'm his child by loving, then it must be his love that I had. And this completely changed my view of love. I, I mean, I used to think, was I naive that there were two kinds of love? There was the love that God had for himself. The father loves the son. And then there was the love that Steve has for other people. And that those were two different loves. But that's not what he says, you guys. He says, if I love I have the Father's love. There aren't two different kinds of love. There is only one kind of love, and it's his love. And as I grow in his love, I'm on my way to becoming children of God. Now, the love of God is not like a love that you know. The love of God is not a quality that is holed up inside of him, waiting to be called on. This is not the love of God. The love of God is the continual current, the flow, the posture. Von Balthasar says, God is an event of love. He exudes it towards the others in a way that is completely dispossessive of himself. The father never loves himself and pulls the spirit and the son into his orbit. No, no. He always divests himself and gives himself fully to the spirit and the son who at the same time have divested themselves. To the father does not have expectations for the son. He don't have standards that he expects the son to live up to. And if the son doesn't do it, then he's a little disappointed and doesn't love him quite as much. 
I mean, the father is never waiting to see how the son is going to act before he starts to love him. So he could never possibly love him more than he does in this very moment, nor could he ever possibly love him less because the father doesn't love the son for what's in the son. He loves him for what's in the father. You say that's too heady for me. I'll make it real simple. Let's suppose that you got friends and you got people that you really admire. They're way up on the echelon. You're like, I mean, for you, they're like, man, they are it. They're the fourth member of the Trinity right there. And I come and tell you, hey, I hear that you, <laughs> I hear that you really esteem Brian. You say, oh, holy cow. That dude is awesome. I say, well, Brian knows who you are. I was talking to him the other day. Really? Yeah. He thinks you're a jerk. <laughs> I guarantee it what will happen is your estimation of Brian will just go just like that. Another way to say it is you kind of wait to see how Brian's going to feel about you to decide how much you believe in Brian. See, it's a different kind of love. When someone who was a friend of yours suddenly betrays a confidence of yours, does it not lower? That's a different kind of love. It means the love that you have for someone is fluctuating depending on how that person acts. It's not completely dispossessive of itself, nor is it completely unmotivated. It always waits for the other to act first. And if the others start to think, you know, I was thinking about you, and you are sort of a genius, you go, oh, I love this guy. That's a different kind of love. Then Jesus says, um, now that love that the father has for the son, have that for your enemies. And, and when he does this, you guys, he completely changes the boundaries between ourselves and other people. Everybody has enemies. But see, the problem with us is that we develop enemies as a counterpart to our loyalties. So the more loyal we are to one thing, the more likely its opposite or opposing force will be an enemy. Now I know that's, I'll break it down for you. Some of you love the Indianapolis Colts. So you hate Tom Brady. Mm, mm, mm. Now that's preaching right there. <laughs> yes, some of you all love Michigan. So you hate Ohio State. Now it's quiet. Some of you all like me our Lions fan. So that means you hate everybody. <laughs> 
See, you have a loyalty, and if anything opposes the loyalty, you stir up a hatred towards that opposing force as if it were a badge of loyalty for the foot. So to hate ISIS is almost an act of patriotism. Why wouldn't you? They oppose the thing I'm loyal to. Today it's really common for people to be all about equal rights. And I'm about it too, but... Um, Sometimes it will stir up in you a hatred for racists. Well, come on. And the hatred for racists is almost a badge of proof that you love minorities. In the 830 service, they grew up with a love for marriage. And so they hated homosexuality. In this service, homosexuality is becoming more and more acceptable, but there's a hatred for pedophiles. My point is simply that by proving our loyalty to one thing, we often develop animosity toward its counterpoint because there is a boundary, there's a border between us and them. And what I hear Jesus saying is, this is not who you are. You do not prove your love for one thing by having to hate the other person. This is no badge of loyalty for you. You are free to love people for what is in you, not for what is in them. You are free to give yourself to people without having to pull them in to your little orbit. You are free to love people without making them act in a certain way. You can love freely. You don't have to prove it by your enemies. You will have enemies. You will always have enemies. But you are free to respond to them in other ways. Someone said to me after the first service, how do I do that? Based on what's happened between me and my enemies. What does love look like? I mean, I think if I look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it means to be completely possessed by what is best for the other person. It, it, it doesn't mean that I choose the other person's good over my own. It means there's not even a comparison. What is my good is what is the pure, true good for the other person. I think that's the love of the Father for the... Do you see why this is such a critical thing? Because I hear, I mean, I used to say, uh, you know, okay, I love people as a Christian, but do I got to like them? I mean, I love them, but I mean, it's better if I just love them from another room. And yet I cannot hear the Father saying to the Son, I love you, Son, but I don't like you. 
I think it's best if we just live in different rooms, but I'll love you as long as I don't have to look at you. It's a different kind of love, church. So what I hear him saying is, the love that we are to have for our enemies is the very substance of the love that the Father has for the Son. I went reading through the Bible. As you can tell, this was a hard week for me. This sermon beat the life out of me. So I go uh, looking through the Bible and trying to find who are the people that are hardest to love. <laughs> I didn't need a ton of help, but I thought I'd look anyway. And, and uh, what I found was there, I mean, I'm lumping them together, you guys, but I found, I think, four different classes that are really hard for religious people to love. I'll say that in slow motion. It doesn't matter what religion you are of. Hindu, if you want, you have a hard time with these four kinds of people. Every religion does, Christianity included. One of them is the alien. This is the person who ain't from around here, are you? This is someone who's an outsider. They look different. They don't belong to the fraternity. They're not in. They were born on the margins. It's the alien. Leviticus says, when an alien lives among you in your land, don't mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as you love yourself. For you were once aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I said this in the 830 service and half of them were shouting glory hallelujah and half of them were shouting build a wall. See, this is what society has done to us. Can you hear it? The second you read a verse like that, you can only hear it politically, can't you? Oh, is Jesus calling us to change our public policy? Look, you don't have to change anything public policy if you want to. I'm asking you, do you love the person in front of you? I'm not asking your opinion on Black Lives Matter. You know, don't you? That you can be strong in the cause and yet weak in the relationships. You can believe in Black Lives Matter and still not like black lives. I've seen it. This is not about your position. It's not about whether we build a wall or not. It is if there is someone who is an alien directly in front of you, do you have the capacity to love that person like the father loves the son? That is the question. And all God's people said, <laughs> second person is the sinner. Every religion has people that break the code, that commit the unpardonable sin, that stretch the boundaries of their religion. So now they wear the scarlet letter. They're marked for life. What do you do with them? You can't just let them back in because if you let them back in, they think that's the way a whole church runs. <laughs> no, 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 no. This isn't about tolerance. This is about transformation. People 
We cannot be changed apart from being immersed into the body of Christ. If we are waiting for sinners to change before they are immersed into our body, they don't need us. This is about bringing people who have broken the code to the table. Galatians 6, 2, 6 1 says, if a person's overcoming a sin, if you're spiritual, restore that person, considering yourself, because you also might be tempted. Sometimes on my list of hard people are those who have let down the body that I am loyal to. The third category is the invisible. These are the widows, the orphans, the poor. This is the homeless, the people that walk the bypass during the day. It's the person who's crazy and they're on your street. <laughs> These are people that, well, we don't hate them. We just... We don't make room for them, man. We don't let them lay claim to our schedules and to our lives or routines. And yet I hear James say that the religion God considers pure and faultless is one that looks after widows and orphans in their distress and it keeps himself from being polluted by the world. This is pure religion. It's to find the marginalized, the prisoners, those locked away. And it gives them access to the table. And the last category is the threat. These are people that wish us harm. They want to undermine us. They sabotage our success. They spread rumors about us. They take things from us. They break into our houses and steal. Or they slander our good name. These are enemies. These are threats. And what I hear Jesus saying is, Bad as it is, son, they cannot be transformed if they can't come through you to get to the table. Well, you can see why this was hard for me, can't you? I think every generation has their enemies. Every generation has their enemies. Out of loyal to one thing, they hate another. My generation, it was lazy people. You're smiling. This generation, it's arrogant people. Dogmatists. And what I hear Jesus saying is, love them all. Like the father loves the son. Now, if you're like me, you looked at that and said, man... Oh, man, that's a bridge too far, man. I can't, there's no way. So I broke it down. Here's my code. Will you write this down first? Who's the hardest person for you to love? No, healing begins when you name the hardest person for you to love. So if you walk out of the service in a few minutes and you say, that was something, certainly something to think about, but you do not identify the hardest person to love. All this is, this whole sermon right now is a piece of art. All it is. Bad art at that. But what I want you to do is to give, not, don't have to name the person. Don't put down Pastor Steve. <laughs> You, you have to name the type of person. Self-sufficient, arrogant, 
rich to themselves. For some of you, there really are some racial ethnic things still in the way. Who is the type of person hardest for you to love? Two, what barriers would you have to overcome if you were to begin to love them? So if someone has done me wrong, it's probably space. I've put space between myself and them, and what I have to overcome is I, gotta, I have to probably should sort of see them. <laughs> Do you, do you say, what barriers? Third, what prevents you from crossing that barrier? Is it fear? Is it control? Something else in the past? What prevents you from, from lowering the barrier a little? And fourth, what would be the next thing you could do in order to start lowering that barrier. Why this is important? Because when I first uh, received the message this week, I did what you did. I sort of went, holy cow, that is way up there. So I disengaged. But, when I, but, but if I tackle the questions, Steve, who are the ones hardest for you to love? What barriers would you have to overcome? What keeps you from going over some of those barriers? And what's the first thing you could do to start lowering one of those barriers? It broke it down into daily steps.